1 Peter chapter 5. This is the last sermon as we've been walking through this book. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for just the joy of being able to worship as your people. Thank you for what you have instructed us uh, from, your, from your word, from First Peter, as we've been looking uh, in it throughout the past few months as what it means to live as sojourners and exiles in a world that is not ultimately our home. I pray, God, that you would be with us now. Humble our hearts. Let us have attentive minds and attentive spirits to what your word has to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You may be seated. How's everybody doing? Oh, man, I love just listening to your voices. Worship the Lord. It was just music to my ears. I'm sure it was to God's. So great to have you here. So great to have you back in the building. For those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, we want to extend an extra special welcome to you from Christ Community Church. My name is Jeff Kennedy. If you don't know, I'm the senior pastor here, and we're going to jump right into 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We will be in verses 5 and following. Uh, A couple of updates about our next sermon series. Next week, you don't want to miss it. If you're watching uh, this morning, uh, you don't want to miss our next sermon series. It's called Forward. It's a vision series that we're going to be starting on uh, October the 4th, next Sunday, and we're going to be asking the question, where do we go from here? So we've had a lot of crises going on simultaneously in our country. What is the vision and the mission of Christ Community Church in the midst of all of that? And we want to start that next series. We'll be in that for about six weeks, and then after that, we start a series called Resilient And I think the subtitle (laughs) that I picked for that series was Rediscovering the Lost Art of Becoming Unshakable. Because people are just being shaken to their core. And the Bible has a lot to say about what kind of worldview, a biblical worldview that you and I need in order to become unshakable in this culture. And that was going to be a fun series. Then we start the book of Acts after that. So good times. Right now we're going to wrap up 1 Peter in chapter 5. And I'm just going to jump right in. We've already read the scripture. Here's the first thing Peter wants to tell us. Number one, we must be humble. We must humble ourselves before God. Once again, verses five and six, he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Let's stop right there. What does it mean to clothe yourself with humility? Well, in the first century world, uh, you didn't get to choose the way you dressed. I bet you everyone who is not a kid who is here this morning... (laughs) Maybe some of you men still have your wives lay out your clothes. I did that for a little while, but I got tired of that. And so listen, in the first century, you didn't get to make that choice. Depending on your class or your status in the first century, that determined how you dressed. And it was regulated by the state, by Rome. If you were a slave, you wore slave's garb. You wore slave clothing. So that everyone in your society knew you were the social status of a slave. 
If you were a freedman, you dressed like a freedman. If you were of the equestrian class, you got to richly embroider your toga. You got to wear a toga and richly embroider it, not just a tunic. If you were in the senatorial class, you got to dress the fanciest of all. That was the three-piece, thousand-dollar Armani suit in the ancient world. And if you were the Caesar, you got to dress the best because you got, you got to wear a wreath, a crown of glory. And so your dress was determined, how you were clothed was determined by your society. It was determined by that social rule, and it was enforced. If you didn't address address according to your status, you could be thrown in prison and even killed. And so now he says, he uses this as a metaphor to say, all of you consider yourselves servants of the Lord. All of you clothe yourselves in the garb of a servant in humility, because that's the way Christ was. You and I are called to be servants of the Lord, and we're called to be servants of each other. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Why would that be? God is actually repulsed by the prideful person. We're going to explain a little bit what that means. But he gives grace to the humble person. We'll explain that. It's very important. So he says in verse 6, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let's unpack this. So all of us are called to mutual service as servants of the Lord to clothe ourselves with the attitude of Jesus who came humbly and was found in appearance as a, as a servant. So what is the definition of humility? Humility is very simply a sober assessment of yourself. That's why he says, think soberly in this passage. It's a sober assessment of oneself, a clear-minded appraisal of one's abilities, limitations, status, or gifts. So it's knowing who you are, where you are, what you can do, what your capacities are. Humility is an accurate estimation or valuation of your value, of who you are, what you can do. That's what humility really is. Why? Because it's the opposite of pride. And how does the Bible define pride? Pride is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. And if pride is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought then humility is thinking of yourself accurately. And if God has put you in a particular station in life or a place in life, and all of us, every one of us in Christ, we are servants of the Lord. We are to clothe ourselves in the humble attitude of the servant. Why is out of control pride and arrogance a problem? Here's why. Because it leads to emptiness and the total collapse of our lives. Little thing. (laughs) Nothing heavy this morning, keeping it light. It leads to the total collapse of your life. It leads to a life that is empty. I want to say this very clearly. No one's life is emptier than the person who is full of themselves. No one's life is emptier than the person. You know who I'm talking about. You have that person in mind right now, don't you? (laughs) For my wife, sometimes it's me, right? That's the picture she sees. But listen, nobody's life is emptier than the person who is just full of themselves. And this doesn't necessarily manifest as a person who is just proud of their accomplishments, a person who just says, oh man, look at all the the pieces of paper, all the degrees on my wall. It's not just, what are you laughing at? I have a few degrees. What? They're hidden back in the office. But it doesn't just manifest as a person bragging about their achievements. Here's how it manifests. A person that just never stops talking about themselves. Never. You've met with that person. You go out to coffee with them. You sit down and they just talk about themselves the entire time. Why? Because their life is full of themselves. 
And no one's life is more emptier than a person whose life just doesn't have any room for Jesus. A person whose life just doesn't have any room for you and your heart and how God has made you and your concerns. So this is a problem. Why is that a problem? Because you and I were made to be filled with the Spirit. Our lives weren't designed to be empty. Our our lives were designed to be filled. The New Testament uses the phrase filled with the Spirit in two contexts. The first context is in the context of being saved. Sometimes being saved is referred to as being filled, deluge, baptized with the Spirit or in the Spirit. The second context that phrase is used is when you and I are empowered by the Spirit. It's the ongoing life of the experience of the Spirit's presence. Why would it be so important to God to use that metaphor, to use that word picture of filling your life with the Holy Spirit? Because you and I were not designed to live empty, and we were not designed to live full of ourselves. We were designed to live full of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what humility is not. Humility is not false modesty. It's not false modesty. I think all of us have had some experience in our lives where we gave somebody, some super religious person, a compliment, and what did they say? Oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. (laughs) No, it wasn't. It was the Lord gracing you and giving you and calling you and you being faithful to what he gave you and called you to do. That's what it was. And so there is such a thing as a false humility. A false humility. Humility is not devaluing that which is valuable. It's not claiming to be a wormy worm when God says you are a worthy son or daughter. It does not denigrate or defame that which is deserving of praise or treat as worthless that which God says is worthy of honor, like your parents. So I want to say, firstly, there is a kind of false humility which all of us, all of us need to avoid because it is an overreaction to the warnings against arrogance, pride, and thinking of ourselves, the scripture says, more highly than we ought. So humility is not false modesty. Did you know that the vast majority of times, though, having said that, the vast majority of times that the New Testament uses the word pride, it's positive. There is actually a positive application of pride. You ever been proud of your kids? Like the first time they go on the toilet? Right? And not in their drawers? Like the first time that they do that, you're like, oh, little Johnny, just, you know, like you're so proud of them. And then when they score a soccer goal or run a touchdown or make that key block, you're proud of them. And the New Testament uses the word pride in this sense too. In fact, most often in this sense, actually. Romans eleven thirteen, 13, Paul takes pride in his ministry among the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2, Paul pleads with the Corinthians to take pride in their apostolic ministry. In 2 Corinthians 7.14, Paul is proud of the Corinthians for their response to his earlier correction in 1 Corinthians. James 1.9 tells us that believers in humble circumstances should take pride in their high position. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's why. So the pride that God rejects, though, the pride that God rejects, there are times when saying, I'm proud of something is perfectly appropriate. I'm proud of this church. I'm proud of every single one of you who got up today and put your clothes on and got out of your bathrobe and got dressed and came to church. I'm proud of you for that. I'm proud of my family, of my boys, of my little girl, of my wife and her faith. But there's a way in which we can use the word pride that is absolutely destructive. Destructive pride is different. 1 John 2.16 says this, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the pride of all that you possess in life. 
is not from the Father. It's from the world system. That kind of pride is from the world system. Why? Because it inflates us. It makes us think, one, we're higher than we ought. It makes us think that we are more capable than we are. It makes us think that we are more or better than others. So in this context, in 1 Peter now, he has told us to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the God-ordained authorities in our lives. He has told us to humble ourselves as leaders and shepherd the flock of which God has made us overseers, knowing that we will be accountable to the great shepherd. And we wait patiently for God to promote us to advance us. And at the end of the age, the scripture says, he will resurrect us and exalt us by resurrecting us from the dead. Number two, we must cast our cares on the Lord. I love this passage. I love, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. He says in verse seven, he says, casting all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares about you. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now, the word casting is the same word that is used of fishermen. Now, this is very fitting because Peter was a fisherman. He's a former fisherman. And so, Peter, what they used to do is walk out onto the Sea of Galilee, walk out onto the beach there, and they would throw these really heavy trammel nets out into the water. And they would cast them out in order to catch fish. And this is the same kind of word. It's the same word that's used when uh, they get a, a little cult and they cast their cloaks on the colt for Jesus to sit and then go claim his kingdom in Jerusalem. It's the same word. So casting has to do with throwing. It has to do with throwing your cares upon the Lord. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Have you felt shaken in the last few months? Have you have some, had some moments where you've felt a little shaken by what's going on in our culture, by the forces of darkness that are coming against us? Have you felt shaken? The scripture says, cast that burden onto the Lord. The Lord will sustain you. Listen, you could come and I could counsel you and I could bless you with some good words from the scripture, but nobody, nobody can sustain you like the Lord. And you and I need to cast our burdens onto the Lord. Why do we practice casting our cares onto the Lord? Well, the first reason is obvious, and that's because the alternative is a life consumed by worry over things you cannot control. Worry over things that you cannot control. So he says, cast all your cares. What does all mean? Yeah, technically the word means this. Every last one, not one left, withholding none. <laughs> Pretty comprehensive. Every last one. Not one care left. Don't hold on to one pet care that you say, this one's mine. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep this one, Lord. You can take care of the rest one. No, it says rest of them, but it says no. Cast all of them on the Lord. The word cares is the same word that is used in Matthew 13. It means the pressing concerns of this life. What are the pressing concerns of life? In that parable, Jesus gives a parable of the sower. He says there are four types of ground. One is so hard and compacted that when the seed of the gospel is sown on it, that heart cannot even receive it. It doesn't even penetrate into the heart. And the devil steals it away. And then the next kind of soil is a soil that is really, at first, receptive, but it's full of rocks, and so it has very shallow roots into the Christian faith. And then when it grows, it's, it is scorched in the heat of the summer. It just doesn't go very far. And what's the next kind of soil? It's that sort of weedy soil. You know what I'm talking about. That would, they're full of weeds, 
And so it begins to sprout in that soil. The seed does. The seed of the gospel begins to produce the kingdom's fruit. But then what happens? All the weeds come in and just choke it to death because those are the cares of this life. And so the cares of this life can cause you to be unproductive in the gospel. And the condition of your heart is what determines the productivity of the seed. The condition of your soil is what determines the productivity of the gospel. And he says, if your heart is full of cares, you can't produce fruit for the gospel. And this is why you and I must practice casting our cares on to the Lord as a daily lifestyle. So the alternative is a life that is just consumed, set on fire by the worries and concerns of this life. Things you cannot control, things that are out of your control, you will never have control over those things. And also because Jesus cares for you. Because Jesus cares about you. Now I want you to know something. Look, I care about you. But I don't care about you as much as Jesus does. I love each and every one of you. I love your faces. Oh, I love to see your faces on Sunday. I love your kids. I do, man. I, when I see you with your little children, it just fills my heart. Just loving and pastoring and shepherding the heart of your little kids. I love, I love that. I love praying for you. I love doing your funerals. I hope I don't have to do any more. But I love ministering to your family in your greatest time of need. I love being your pastor, but you need to know you have a pastor of your soul. You have a shepherd of your soul who loves you infinitely more than I ever could. Or Pastor Daniel or Ryan or Patrick or our elders like Jace ever could. You have a shepherd of your soul. And guess what? I'll tell you what else. I'm your pastor. I'm not your priest. Because the scripture says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can go to Jesus. You can go to that shepherd any day. I'm not available. If I'm not available, you can go see him. And you can go to the shepherd of your souls, the great chief shepherd of the church, and you can cast your cares and your burdens on him directly. Because why? Because he loves you. He cares about you. If you could just catch a glimpse. Yo, worship is great. You know who worship is for? You know who worship is to? God. It's for you, though. God doesn't need your worship. You know who needs it? You do. You and I were designed, we were made to worship God. And when you and I come in here and we sing full-throated the praises of our God, you know what happens? You and I catch a little bit of glimpse of just how much God loves us, how much he cares for us. And when you know just how much God loves you, oh, you will cast your cares on the Lord. So that's why we do it. How do we do it? How do we do that? cast our concerns onto the Lord, the shepherd of our souls. Well, firstly, it takes humility. Well, that's why we started with humility. It takes humility to let go of the things we should not and cannot carry. Listen, your shoulders are not big enough to carry your sin. Jesus already carried your sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. You can't carry that. Cast your cares of your sin onto the Lord. Listen, your shoulders are too small to carry every concern and crisis that is blowing up in the world right now. I told you this before. I'm going to tell you again. Eternal's cable news apps off. Listen, you, you, the, the psyche, the human psyche, your soul was not designed to process all of that. Did you know that 15 years ago before the advent of 24-7, 20 Four, seven cable news channels and all these wonderful little magical apps that keep us updated all day long and worrying all day long. Did you know that before that, the world was still blowing up, folks? <laughs> it was probably just as bad, if not worse, then. The only difference between then and now is that you didn't know about it. 
Your life was free from it. And so you and I are not designed to carry all those cares. And if you find yourself being consumed, overwhelmed, on fire, your mind on fire by worry, cast it onto the Lord and turn that stuff off. Because you weren't designed to take that. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. So it takes humility. That is pride. When you and I say, no, 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 I need to know all about that because if I don't know, what's going to happen? That's just pride. Humble yourself. We need to clothe ourselves in humility so that we can bow the knee and say, I can't know all that, but I know one who can. And I know one who can carry it. And then that's Jesus, my Savior, my Messiah. And then we practice the disciplines of grace, daily prayer, the word, community, and repentance. Okay. You and I need to get in the word of God every single day. You and I cannot afford to be skipping time in the word. Whatever part of the day where that is optimal for you to meet with God, you and I need to get with God. We need to reprogram our minds. Why? Because the culture is trying to program us into thinking a certain way. And you and I need God's word because it just cleans all of that out. And it shows us what a godly biblical worldview is. And we need prayer. We need to come to God each and every day and just commune in prayer with the Lord. The way that I do it is I combine these. I actually go through either like the book of Isaiah or Psalms. It's usually the Psalms and Isaiah. And I go through those passages and I pray through them. So whatever I'm reading, I'm praying. And I just want to encourage you to do that. The book of Psalms, that was Jesus' songbook. You want to ask what Jesus sang in the first century in the second temple period? That was his hymnal. And you and I need to know that. You and I need to go through Isaiah. We need to go through the Psalms, go through the Old Testament, go through the New Testament and pray the word. It's so good for your soul. It'll deliver you. And then community. Listen, I'm proud of you for being here. But I want to speak to all of you who are watching right now by live stream. If you have an underlying condition... And there are some real concerns about leaving the house and being in a room like this where people are singing and doing all this. Listen, you, have, you get a pass. Everybody just said amen, right? That's right. You get a pass. Because we have compassion on you. you we have mercy on you. I'm glad live stream is available to you. But for those of you who don't have any underlying conditions and you're just sitting there in your bathrobe because it's more convenient, you need to get your butt to church next week. <laughs> That's my pastoral advice. Because you can't do Christianity in a vacuum. Christianity was not designed to be your personal uh, relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was designed to be this community. And in this community, you and I commune. We partake of God's presence together. And so you and I draw life from the community. When you leave here today, the Holy Spirit, you will feel like you've been filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you met with the church. You need it. I need it. I need you. I need to see your face every week. And I need to see some of your faces I haven't seen in a while. It's time to get out of your bathrobe, come to church. So we practice these disciplines and also the discipline of repentance. What is repentance? It means to turn away. But here's what it is. The discipline of daily repentance checks me against my sinful nature. My sinful nature agrees. Listen, my sinful nature agrees with everything the world thinks. Because naturally, I'm a sinner. In my flesh, the scripture says, there dwells no good thing. I, I, if I 
only watch the cable news shows where they're just arguing and talking on top of each other, or I only watch YouTube videos about things that where I'm trying to critique their opinions, here's what will happen. It will infect my thinking because my flesh wants to think that way. But the the flesh is willing, the spirit, the, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Now, my spirit wants to go with the Lord. In order for me to do that, I have to practice the daily art of repentance. I have to turn away from sin. I have to turn to Christ and say, Christ, what you think about the situation is the truth, not what I think. You're the Lord, not me. You're the Lord. So repentance is a daily discipline, and we need to cultivate these daily disciplines. Why? Because they nourish those dry parts of our soul. They long nourish us in God's word and his presence. So we practice the disciplines of grace. And also, we name those cares and call them out. When I was a teenager, I used to go to a church called the Word of Faith Church. And the Word of Faith Church teaches a false gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. And for those of you who do not know this, part of their false gospel is what's called name it and claim it. Have you heard this? Back when I was a Word of Faith person, we called this gabbing it and grabbing it. Right, we would just we would we would say it, expecting to receive it, but there's another side to that, and that is you're not supposed to say anything you don't want to receive. So I remember I came into church one day. Here's how it goes: I came into church one day, and I was about a 16 year old kid. Walked into church. There was a lady there who who greeted us every week, and she said, "How you doing, brother?" I said, "I'm doing great. I think I've got a little cold coming on." She said, "Don't speak that." She told me not to speak that. I was like, but I have a cold coming on. Am I not supposed to say that? Because that'll bring it on you. That's, that's nonsense. The New Testament does not teach that. You are supposed to make your request known to God with thanksgiving. You and I are supposed to tell the Lord all that is in our heart, all that is happening in our life. Here's the psalm. Psalm 94, 18 and 19. It says, if I say, my foot is slipping, I'm falling. Your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Look, you name it. If you're slipping, you tell the Lord. If you can't handle it, you tell God. If you don't have the resources or the wherewithal, you confess it to the Lord and say, God, this is what I need from you. I need you. You call it out. You cast your cares on the Lord. And you may be here, and you're carrying a great burden. And you wonder if anybody knows. You wonder if anybody cares. I want you to know God knows and God cares. God cares more than anybody could. And God invites you to come and exchange your sorrows for his joy, to exchange your uncertainty about the future for his assurance that he holds the future. God invites us to transfer our burdens to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And if you would just take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. I would give you the rest that you seek. You and I are called by Jesus. We are invited by Jesus to come. We're invited to come and exchange our burden for his light and easy yoke. And why is his his yoke easy? Why is it light? Because he's carrying it. He's carrying it. And he can. Number three, be alert and resist the devil. You believe the devil exists? I hope you do. Uh, this, is, this teaching, I don't know, in the church today has really fallen out of fashion. I mean, I've heard the devil defined as all kinds of things. Well, it's just kind of this sort of a, a, a personification of the concept of evil. No, it's not. He's real. 
He's messing with us. He has been from the garden to today, and he will be until he is chained, according to Revelation, chapter what, 19, 20. Right? That's right. Jess and I are right about that. We've <laughs> been talking about that all week. But um, he's real. Both the Old and New Testament teaches the devil, Satan, as if he is a very real person. He is a fallen angel. And he's incredibly powerful. And he's incredibly deceptive. He's the slickest talker you've ever seen. Okay? So his names give it away. His name's Satan. Do you know what that word means? That word means the adversary. It means the one who opposes. He is the adversary, the enemy of all of God's purposes in the world. The word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos. And that word means uh, the one who accuses or maligns. Satan day and night, every day, is accusing the church of Jesus. He is accusing and maligning our character of false things. Constantly. He's also an angel of light. He is the angel of light. He is a master of religion. And he wants to teach you and seduce you into believing doctrines of demons. Folks, this is real. You and I need to be alert so that we can resist the devil. Now, Peter's not speaking out of turn here, man. He, he knows exactly, quite literally, what it means to fail here. Peter fell asleep. He slept through probably the most important prayer meeting in the history of the world. Quite literally fell asleep. And Jesus said, hey, boys, stay awake so that you can be alert, so that you can resist the devil. And they fell asleep, they were not alert, and the devil had his way. They all ended up denying the Lord, especially Peter, three times. Okay, so here's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, I know from experience how to fail right here. I know what it's like to fail right here at this point in my faith. So I'm telling you, stay alert so that you can resist the devil. And what does he want to tempt you to do? What does he want to tempt you to do? Folks, if you're a Christian in America, he wants, to, uh, he wants to tempt you to be a lazy Christian. If he can't make bad Christians, if he can't deceive you and make you a secularist, he'll just make you a lazy person. He will. Now, I want to play for you a video, a story by Pastor Wayne Cordero in Hawaii. I want to play this video for you, and then I'll come back, and I'll make some comments. But the story is about his encounter at a Chinese church with the congregation there. Let's roll that. Let me finish with this uh, story. Uh, we go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. And this time we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province, and they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in, and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning, and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around and I said, now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, you're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. 
And I looked at him and I said, you, you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize so many chapters? She said, in prison. She said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because <laughs> even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. And you guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like, uh, you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you. I love that story because I think what it reminds us of is the irony. We live in a land of cherished freedoms, and those freedoms are a blessing from God. You know they are. And of course, no one, no one would want to tr trade our free system for their oppressive system. But the irony of Pastor Wayne's story is not lost on any of us. They were asking, someday may we, may China, become like America. May we have more of your freedoms. And he was saying, may we have more of your kind of Christians with an urgency of devotion. Christians who are awake, alert, not spiritually sleepy, because they have to be. Folks, I'm not getting on you. Hear my heart. I'm one of you. 
I struggle with the same temptations you do. But we have got to resist the temptation of the enemy to turning us into sleepy Christians. And so how do we do that? It's very simple. What's the antidote? Well, we need to resist the temptation to complain about first world problems. Resist the temptation to complain about first world problems. I know some of you, I know some of you are kind of been out of shape that our ushers have to seat you in this room. And you just want to seat yourself. And some of you have been kind of grumpy about it. Again, I'm not getting on your case. I just want to explain to you why. This room seats 425 people. Top. Max. That's Easter Sunday. One service in on Easter Sunday. In order for us to comply uh, with our county regulations, we have to seat you in order to achieve anything like physical distancing. And so, folks, that's a first world problem. That's not persecution. That's an inconvenience. You and I are not being persecuted because we're being asked to wear a mask in the building and out of the building. That's not persecution. That's an inconvenience. And so, folks, let's just, let's be humble. Let's humble ourselves and let's, let's have the kind of spirit and the kind of attitude that Christ requires of us and realize that our brothers and sisters across the world are dealing with things that are far more grave, situations that are far more grave than you and I. The second antidote is to focus on humbling ourselves and caring for one another. A church that is clothed in humility and caring, too busy caring about other Christians, other believers, is just too busy to complain about first world problems. And inconveniences. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your heart. You guys have been amazing. But let's, let's, let's keep going. Let's continue to resist the sinful nature. So to recap, are we clothing ourselves in humility? Are we taking the status of servants to God and servants to others very seriously? Are we daily practicing the disciplines of grace humbling ourselves before the Lord and casting our cares on him because he cares for us and caring for one another? Are we alert, sober-minded, resisting the temptation to become a bunch of grumpy, fault-finding people? Satan would love to turn us into that because we'd be the most ineffective church on the planet. And there's just too many of those already. Will you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and our elders are going to prepare communion this morning and communion is a fantastic opportunity for you and I to allow the Holy Spirit to turn on the headlights, to turn on the spotlights into our soul. And right now, I just want you to take a minute or two and ask the Lord to convict you in any of these areas or anything else. Lord, is there any way in which I am not humbling myself and I'm just holding on to cares and concerns that my shoulders aren't big enough to carry. Right now, Lord, would you show me that? And I just confess that and I cast that onto you. Lord, if I have not been careful to humble myself and be humble in my attitude and to clothe myself in the servant's garb of humility, Lord, would you convict me of that? And Lord, if I have lived too sleepy, a slumbering Christian who is not aware that the devil is prowling around to devour us. He wants to devour this church and devour the community of faith in our world and in our community and me personally. God, would you, help, would you open my eyes? Would you help me to be alert? Would you wake me up? Help me to do that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
Thank you.